The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. In February of 1776, General George Washington took time out from fighting a bloody war of independence to correspond with a young woman, a poet. Phyllis Wheatley had just written a poem for him. It was titled, To His Excellency General Washington. In it, she offered him visions of victory and relief from British tyranny. Proceed, great chief, with virtue on thy side. Thy every action, let the goddess guide. A crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine. With gold unfading, Washington, be thine. Washington was enchanted and wildly impressed. I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses and to whom nature has been so liberal and beneficent in her dispensations. I am, with great respect, your obedient, humble servant. Phyllis Wheatley was an extraordinary woman. She defied all the odds to become the first African-American to publish a book of poetry in America. Her poems were lauded by kings and presidents. She's recognized as the foremother of African-American literature. That's Vincent Coretta, author of Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage. She published a book when she was at most 20 years old. And she became a transatlantic international figure when she was barely out of her teens, while she was still a slave. I mean, it's really a kind of astounding story of her life, how much she achieved so early. She became an international celebrity. Phyllis was a poet, an elegist, and a woman who used her considerable talents to convince the people who owned her to return her freedom to her. From iHeartRadio and Tribeca Studios, this is Fierce. I can't type. Yes, women workers do present problems, Joe. A podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books. 
and the modern women carrying on their legacies today. Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. I can't find it. Women workers don't mind routine, repetitive work. Will you make a copy of this? Naturally. Each week, we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Phyllis is better known than a lot of women in this series. She has libraries and schools named after her. And yet, I've met so many men and women in the writing and publishing community who had never heard her name before. The woman who would later write under the name Phyllis Wheatley was only about seven years old when she was forced to endure the Middle Passage from West Africa on a slave ship called the Phyllis. After an arduous journey, the ship dropped her in Boston, where she was sold for a pittance to Susanna Wheatley, the wife of a prominent Boston merchant. The captain of the ship believed the girl was too sick to survive much longer, and he wanted to recoup at least some of his money for her passage. They guessed that she was seven, because she had just lost some of her baby teeth. Her own name, the one her parents had given her when she was born, is lost to us. The Wheatleys named her after the ship she came over on. A Wheatley relative described her as tiny and nearly naked, covered only in a dirty carpet, despite the fact that she was obviously ill. Phyllis had been purchased to work as a house slave. But Susanna Wheatley and her twin 18-year-old children, Nathaniel and Mary, also began teaching her to read and write. There were about 15,000 people living in Boston at this time. Maybe a thousand of them were black. Of those, most were free, but no black children were known to be enrolled in school. When she quickly took to both reading and writing, they moved on to Latin, Greek, British literature, astronomy, and history. Interestingly, if you compare her writing to that of a number of the white women that she corresponded with, her writing is much better. Despite having begun her English language education significantly later than most children in Boston, and under the extremely traumatic circumstances of slavery, her skills far outstripped those of her peers. So they bought this small child, and she quickly demonstrated that she was a prodigy because she, within four years, she was attempting to write poetry. So they gave her access to an education that was beyond the access to education that most white children in Boston were given. Anyone who spent any amount of time studying this period of American history knows that white slave owners most often prevented slaves from being educated. But we shouldn't assign undue heroism to the Wheatleys. Living in Boston in the mid-1700s, they weren't exactly risking their social standing by doing this, and they didn't face any legal repercussions for it. Actual laws prohibiting slave literacy would become most prominent in the 1800s, after Phyllis's death, and those laws were mostly enacted in the South. Even in the South, it wasn't always illegal to teach people to read. That's Dana Williams. 
chair of the Department of English and interim dean of the graduate school at Howard University. And you don't have that same kind of difficulty in the North in terms of the uprising and rebellion, in part because plantation labor and the harshness of slavery in the South is different in the North. It can just be de facto understood that this isn't in the interest of slaveholding to teach people to read because we see the connection between literacy and humanity, literacy and freedom, literacy and property. So although she was encouraged in unprecedented ways, to the Wheatleys, Phyllis was also a curiosity, in some ways a social experiment. And she was not free. There were networks of people who supported Phyllis Wheatley's work, and they were friends of the Wheatleys in some instances. So it was almost an experiment in terms of thinking about whether this was something that was viable and what the implications would be of this kind of education and then this kind of support of a girl who's otherwise enslaved. We know that it's not all altruistic because they don't free her immediately and they own her to begin with. So they aren't, quote unquote, good people. Viewing Phyllis as a commodity, the Wheatleys would likely have made certain calculations as to her worth to them. Wheatley, for most of her adult life, was fairly frail. She was not able to do domestic work in the same way that other people would have been. People who worked terribly hard, there's a value orientation there as well that says she has to be worth something, otherwise she can be sold or dismissed. Had she been fully robust and able to complete domestic work, it very well may have been a different scenario. They might not have been looking for other giftedness in her to take advantage of their purchase. Here's Vincent Coretta again. The better she looked, the better they looked. It was almost as if she was like a luxury good, the kind of equivalent of you buy a BMW and you park it in front of your house so all your neighbors can envy you. In their social circles, it also reflected well on the Wheatleys that the education they were providing was a Christian education. They taught her to read and paraphrase the Bible. She was recognized very quickly as a phenomenon. John Wheatley, Susanna Wheatley's husband, wrote, Without any assistance from school education and by only what she was taught in the family, she, in 16 months' time from her arrival, attained the English language. She has a great inclination to learn the Latin tongue and has made some progress in it. She wrote her first known poem at 11. When she was about 13, the Newport Mercury newspaper published one of her poems after Susanna Wheatley submitted it to them. The poem described two men nearly shipwrecked in a storm off of Cape Cod. Phyllis had heard the story when the men came to dinner at the Wheatley's house. Suppose the groundless gulf had snatched away hussy and coffin to the raging sea. Where would they go? Where would be their abode? Would the supreme and independent God? Or made their beds down in the shades below, where neither pleasure nor content can flow. That's an actress reading Phyllis Wheatley's words. The sources for her quotes throughout the episode are from her book, Poems on Various Subjects Religious and Moral, published in 1773, and also from various periodicals which published her poems and letters during her life. So that poem didn't get much attention. It was a local publication. She never republished it. Still... The publication of that poem made Phyllis among the first published African-Americans in America. Three years later, at age 17, 
Phyllis wrote a poem about the Boston Massacre and an elegy to a man named George Whitfield. He was an incredibly popular evangelical preacher and the chaplain to the Countess of Huntingdon in England. He leaves this earth for heaven's unmeasured height, and worlds unknown receive him from our sight. There, Woodfield wings with rapid course his way and sails to Zion through vast seas of day. That poem caught on like wildfire and was published all over the country, in Boston, Newport, and Philadelphia. It was published in London the next year, giving Phyllis a kind of fame on both sides of the ocean. Which was the equivalent of saying, well, you've gone from publishing in Indianapolis to publishing in New York City. London is where you wanted to publish. The academic and biographer Henry Louis Gates said it made her the Toni Morrison of her time. It was then that the Countess of Huntingdon became interested in Wheatley. The Countess sent a couple of ministers to interview Phyllis. One of them gave her a writing assignment to see if she could actually write poetry. Phyllis astonished the minister by writing the poem right in front of him. He wrote to the Countess that he was amazed by this young girl. And remember, she's an enslaved teenager at this point. He said she's the real deal. And this ultimately, eventually led to the Countess of Huntington being the patroness of Wheatley's first, well, only published book in 1773 that came out in London and was dedicated to the Countess of Huntington. An engraving of Phyllis appeared in the opening pages. The book, Poems on Various Subjects Religious and Moral, was the first book of poetry published in the English language by a person of African descent. Henry Louis Gates said the publication was greeted with something akin to the shock of cloning a sheep. The book's publisher, Archibald Bell, put it this way. The book displays perhaps one of the greatest instances of pure, unassisted genius that the world has ever produced. The author is a native of Africa and left not the dark part of the habitable system until she was eight years old. Voltaire writes about her as proof that people of African descent are capable of writing literature, whereas some people had denied that that was a possibility. Her book was reviewed fairly widely in England, especially in London, and most of the reviews were positive, though some were kind of begrudgingly so. Phyllis was celebrated for her mastery of the English language. But academics now believe her gift for language would have been well-established before she was forced to leave her home, before she'd ever even heard a word of the English language. What we have to keep in mind is, based on where we think that Wheatley was taken from, she would have been fluent minimally in Wolof and in Arabic and would have been able to move between languages fairly easily. So her command of language would not have been anything unusual. You have a number of literate enslaved people who are writing, but not in English, but in Arabic. We see so little of that in 19th century literature, in part because people in the Americas were not familiar with Arabic. There are some conversations about Wheatley being seen very early on with um, charcoal making marks, and some scholars speculate that she was trying to write Arabic, but the Wheatleys, unable to recognize it, saw it just as markings. I think her gift of language is what makes it possible for her to pick up English and pick up Latin and integrate all of these different things into something that is palatable for the people who are consuming her work. Time for a quick break. 
When we come back, we'll follow Phyllis on her life-altering trip to London. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. In 1773, when she was about 20 years old, Phyllis traveled to London with Nathaniel Wheatley to oversee her book's publication. It was a whirlwind tour that included work, tourism, and rubbing elbows with the literary elite. While there, she received a visit from Benjamin Franklin and toured the Tower of London with anti-slavery activist Granville Sharp. That London visit would forever change the course of Phyllis Wheatley's life. See, the year before her visit, the British courts had handed down the Mansfield decision. Lord Mansfield, Lord Chief Justice, ruled that no slave brought to England from the colonies could forcibly, legally be brought back to the colonies as a slave. That ruling was widely publicized in the colonies. In fact, in newspapers, there'd be warnings, don't bring your slaves to England because they can run away and you won't be able to bring them back. People used to think of Phyllis Wheatley as a fairly passive young girl who just benefited from the charity of others. Phyllis Wheatley is a much more assertive young woman. And so what I think she did, she said to her master's son, look, I'll go back, but I need to have your word given to me in front of these people that I will be freed if I go back. The Wheatleys granted her freedom. And Phyllis, demonstrating remarkable business savvy for her age, took several steps to distribute written proof of that freedom. She was meant to receive 50% of the sales of her book, and she wanted to be sure that money went to her and not the Wheatleys. 
But freedom didn't come with any guarantees of protection or rights for a young black woman in pre-Revolutionary War America. And life was precarious enough for any person trying to live by their pen. People who were free people of African descent often were property or had a skill set that made them indispensable. And because she wasn't a seamstress, she wasn't a laundress, there weren't things that she could have done where she could have made a good living independent of working with other people in her community. There was no such thing as complete freedom. At any moment, without a white person to affirm her identity and affirm her freedom, those papers could become meaningless. There were plenty of instances of free Black people being enslaved, despite having viable papers. The volatility, even for free people, is something that we have to take into consideration and understand that the options that people had would have been very limited. Phyllis knew she'd meet resistance from people in Boston. So it was in her best interest to keep the Wheatley family close, as her allies. She went back and she recognized that she had to become a businesswoman. She returned to live with the Wheatleys. Literary critics in the civil rights era would later point to Wheatley's seeming ambivalence towards the institution of slavery. Upon her return from London, though, we do get to see her decisively condemn slavery in print. She'd long shared a correspondence with a minister named Sansa Malcolm. One of her letters to him was published in March of 1774 in the Connecticut Gazette. In it, she responds to a strong argument he's made against slavery, and she takes it even further. In every human breast, God has implanted a principle, which we call love of freedom. It is impatient of oppression and pants for deliverance. How well the cry for liberty and the reverse disposition for the exercise of oppressive power over others agree. I humbly think it does not require the penetration of a philosopher to determine. And this is why I think it's so important to read Wheatley holistically, because her letters are far more revealing, and she's far more critical of the state of enslavement than in the poems that we get. And I say the ones that we get as opposed to saying the ones that she wrote, because we have no idea if she wrote 20 poems that made it clear that enslavement was completely wrong and none of those came to the surface because it would not have been in the interest of the Wheatleys to bring those to the fore. So between the Wheatleys as her immediate kind of censors to um, the editors and the presses that she would have had to work with to try to get her work out, there was absolute censorship. Phyllis had to survive as best she could in the context she was forced into. She used her talents to forge a path forward for herself. Part of being a good businesswoman was keeping her name in print. Phyllis knew that writing poems about high-profile people would get her attention and accolades. So in 1775, she sent George Washington her poem about him. She enclosed a letter. I have taken the freedom to address Your Excellency in the enclosed poem and entreat your acceptance. Your being appointed by the Grand Continental Congress to be Generalissimo of the Armies of North America, together with the fame of your virtues, excites sensations not easy to suppress. Wishing Your Excellency all possible success in the great cause you are so generously engaged in. I thank you most sincerely for your polite notice of me in the elegant lines you enclosed. 
however undeserving I may be of such encomium and panegyric. The style and manner exhibit a striking proof of your poetical talents. If you should ever come to Cambridge, or near headquarters, I shall be happy to see a person so favored by the muses, and to whom nature has been so liberal and beneficent in her dispensations. I am, with great respect, your obedient, humble servant. I think it was very intentional. So when she talks about the pursuit of freedom from tyranny and celebrates it in an elegy of a heroic person, her point in doing that, I think overwhelmingly, is I am one of you and I too want my freedom. We want freedom from the tyranny of oppression. Historians differ as to whether Phyllis actually visited Washington and Cambridge or not. Some say she passed a half hour with him. Some say she delighted him and his troops. Others say they never met at all. But he would later help her publish that poem in the Virginia Gazette. The poems to specific people are also customary for the time, where that was part of how you got some fame by writing to someone and in celebration of someone, petitioning someone who is your benefactor to celebrate them because they give you money, because you make them look good. Despite her publications and accolades, life as a free woman was never going to be easy for Phyllis. For one, the country was at war, in turmoil. And two, her longtime benefactor, Susanna Wheatley, passed away in 1774. Most of Phyllis's supporters were preoccupied, or long dead. She attempted to print a second book dedicated to Benjamin Franklin, but she couldn't get it published. That's probably in part because there was a depression going on, the, the war was going on. She couldn't publish it in London because of the war. Gates beautifully wrote that Phyllis's freedom enslaved her to a life of hardship. In 1778, when she was about 24, she married John Peters, a free black person like herself and a man of many talents. He worked as a lawyer, a doctor, and a businessman. He seemed to have a finger in just about every pot. And yet, as a black man, he was always on the edges of society, feeding at the crumbs of the business world. He hit bankruptcy more than once. The challenges that we see with her husband and his legal issues, I think, would have everything to do with the time and the space where he wasn't propertied and he didn't have a skill set that was indispensable either. So we see disputes happening that can't be resolved and where there is some discrimination involved, we imagine. It's just a very difficult time for free people to be independent of the society that they find themselves in. The options just were limited for people of color. There aren't many records of Phyllis from 1780 to 1784. Her husband was in and out of legal trouble and struggling to find work and pay bills as a free black man. Vincent Coretta speculates that the couple may have tried to stay out of the public eye to avoid trouble. In 1784, Phyllis did attempt to publish another volume of poems, but she passed away before she was able to. She probably died of asthma because she says that in previous winters, she mentions in various letters to people, I have my asthmatic condition again. I'm ill again from that. Phyllis died in 1784. She was only about 30 years old. 
Her book wasn't published in America until two years after her death. And some, it wasn't published until 1786 in Philadelphia. She was only the second American woman after Anne Bradstreet in the 17th century who published a book in America. Then in the 19th century, on both sides of the Atlantic, she was used as an example of the abilities of people of African descent by both people who are in favor of the slave trade or against the slave trade on both sides. One of her most famous and most controversial poems is found in her book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. It's called On Being Brought from Africa to America. Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as cane may be refined and join the angelic train. I think a particular kind of reading of that poem makes it clear that it's not as conciliatory and conservative as one might imagine, where she, you know, writes, "'Twas mercy that brought me from my pagan land," which suggests that, you know, she was grateful for being taken from Africa because she was introduced to Christianity. And I think if we read it differently, we see the irony of mercy. If it is mercy that brought her from a pagan land, then how do you explain the violence and the enslavement, which is not characteristic of her land of peace? She probably had different ideas of what pagan meant, particularly in relation to Christianity, which, you know, comes out of paganism. I think we can see that there are at least two meanings happening in that poem. I think she's feeding into that discourse at the time where religious leaders were trying to decide whether or not a person who had been indoctrinated into Christianity should then be freed. Um, it's a real discourse that's happening at the time to say, all right, if a person is baptized and they become Christian, can you continue to enslave them? So I think she's very clearly writing herself into that discourse to say, I see your debates and the way that you're leaning is Christians or Negroes, quote unquote, black as Cain from the supposed curse, have access to Christianity too, and as such should be freed. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's only recently, in the past few decades, that this type of nuanced interpretation of Phyllis's work has gained more recognition and appreciation. In the... 20th century, people didn't write as much about her. And then in the 1970s, there was a lot of criticism of her by both white and black literary critics, one of whom accused her of having a white mind, that she wasn't black enough, that she wasn't political enough. From the 1980s on, we've become much more sophisticated in the way we're reading her works. And we're much more conscious of the fact that, well, we need to take into consideration when we're reading a particular poem, was it written while she was a slave or after she was free? There are a number of schools named after Phyllis Wheatley in in the country, but we can always do more to make her known. Time for a break. When we come back, I sit down with the renowned poet Nikki Giovanni. Ms. Giovanni was kind enough to share her thoughts on Phyllis Wheatley with us and describe her own path to becoming a published poet at an extremely young age. Opinions of Phyllis Wheatley have changed drastically over the years. And even though her work is increasingly recognized, she hasn't always been included in the Western canon of great poets that get taught in schools. The nature of the art world is that you never know how long it's going to take people to understand what great work you did. That's the poet Nikki Giovanni. She's one of America's most celebrated living poets today. Two centuries after Phyllis made her mark on the world, Nikki Giovanni created her own success by self-publishing her first book of poetry when she was just 24 years old. She sold 100 copies of that book out of the trunk of her car, kickstarting a career that spanned five decades. Ms. Giovanni has won the Langston Hughes Medal and the NAACP Image Award. She's also been nominated for a Grammy for her poetry album, the Nikki Giovanni Poetry Collection. We spoke to Ms. Giovanni at Virginia Tech, where she teaches poetry. We talked about how she handles Phyllis Wheatley in the classroom and the complexity involved in referring to Phyllis as a first in the world of poetry. Do you discuss Phyllis Wheatley in your classes? We talk about people like Phyllis Wheatley and the fact that she had a voice and she was determined to use it. That's what's important. Now, Ms. Wheatley, of course, was enslaved. She was purchased by somebody. And I think it's important not to be purchased by somebody. Now, Miss Wheatley couldn't help it because that was the age she grew in. But now, you have to own yourself. You just have to own yourself. I have a copy of her first edition. I, I was uh, at an auction. I was able to do it. It's hanging in my house. So my respect and my love of Phyllis, what she had was she had something to say. And she was in Boston, and we forget that Bostonians, and Mr. Wheatley would be a part of it, had slaves. And someone said, oh, they taught her to read and write. But 
The enslaved had learned to read and write a long time. They had to because they're learning to listen to people and they're talking back. What was the landscape like when you first broke into the world of poetry? I'm not even sure that I broke into the poetry world. It's what I can do. I couldn't sing. I don't know how to dance. I'm not an actress. I had a really very pretty sister, so I didn't want to try to be, you know, the most beautiful person in the world. All I could do, actually, and all I enjoyed doing was watching. And that's what writers do. We watch. Were there still barriers to you when you wanted to get published for the first time? One of the big problems is that everybody thinks somebody ought to be there to help them do their work. It's not true. It's your work. You get it there, and you take it to the people that you want to hear it. So the main thing that you have to know, especially if you want to be a poet, is that you have to find your audience and let them hear what you're doing. There are no barriers to that. The problem will be, of course, that you're not going to make a million dollars, that you're not going to have your private plane to pick you up, you're not going to have your limousine, you're not going to have some big fat guy being your security guard. All of that is crap anyway. How's your own poetry evolved since you first started out? I've been in this business, if you want to call it that, for over 50 years. So I should have grown some, which I hope I did. I think my first book was published when I was 24, 25. And I have a book that will be out in the fall called Make Me Rain. And if I didn't grow between my first book and the one that's coming, something's wrong with somebody. You were young when you first published. Can you tell us a little bit about how you made that happen? Well, the first book that I published is called Black Feeling, Black Talk. And I published it. I lived in New York, had a friend in the village. We published it. And I asked him, you know, if I published 100 books, what would it cost me? And he said, oh, I can do 100 books for $100, which to me, uh, I'm a good business person. I'll never be rich because I don't want to be rich, but I, I could do that division. Oh, that means I can sell a book for a dollar a piece, and I'll break even. I had a little Volkswagen. Just put the books in the Volkswagen. And, you know, you go around and you read your poetry, and people like a poem or something. You can sell anybody anything for a dollar. If you can't sell something for a dollar, something wrong with you. William Morrow came to me and said, oh, you know, we'd love to publish your, your next book. And I said, fine, because I didn't want to be, I don't want to be in business, really. I wanted to get the work out, but I didn't want to have to spend my time doing that. When you think of Phyllis, do you think of her as someone who paved the way for women poets and poets of color in America? What Miss Wheatley had to hear when she went to the market, she's in Boston, what she had to hear when she went to the market and she heard those black women singing in the market and she heard the stories that they told. And she heard, as we were talking about before, she heard a language that, that the white people who owned her, if I can use that term, didn't know what they were talking about. Her path was led by some of those old ladies in the market. So we don't know who leads the path. That's why you walk together, children, and don't you get weary. And once we got out of slavery, we could go back to doing what we want to. But you have to remember that the poetry, which is actually the poetry of the world, are the spirituals. The enslaved created the music that is still heard around the world. The New York Times recently did an article on Walt Whitman. And I don't know why they called me, because I, I'm always disappointing those people. And they said, uh, you know, Walt Whitman is our first poet, and we'd like for you to respond. And I did respond. Walt Whitman was not our first poet. Our first poet was those women, particularly, who were in the field who were singing songs, who were putting a rhythm together, who were finding a way to get up before light and cooking a meal and putting something together so that they could go out and pick cotton or pick peanuts or whatever it is that they were being expected to do. 
and come home at night and there'd be a meal there. They were the first poets. And if you recall, Walt Whitman, you know, used to hang around black people and then hanging around them, whether it was in the hospital for civil war and all of that, that's what he heard. That's what he learned something. And you get tired of that. You, you get tired of white men stealing from black people. You get tired of men stealing from women. You get tired of that. But how do you push against it? What do you do? I don't know what you do. I know what I do is that when I run into it, I say, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> That's, I, I won't take that. I, I won't let that happen. And I can't, but I know this, you can't say foolishness in front of me without me responding. Why are we constantly changing our opinions of women like Phyllis? We change our opinion on everything. We change our opinion because everybody grows. We've learned a little more. We've paid a little more attention. And it wasn't that Phyllis Wheatley was neglected or anything. It's just the world kept changing and changing. And now we have time to sit down and say, well, what's going on here? When did you first feel like people were taking you seriously as a poet? I still try very hard not to be bothered with thinking how people take me. I'm, I'm not good. I'm not friendly. I don't really care what most people think about most things. I, I just don't think it's my job. That's not what I am. <laughs> I write. I hope people like it. But if you start to be bothered with what people think and how they think of you, it will affect your work. It's so basic. You don't want that to happen. But it's hard not to worry how people think about you, how people receive you. In all fairness, because I know a lot of famous people, and the one thing that, that you can see is that it makes you crazy if you take it seriously. You know, so I go to my grocery store. I know my people. I go get my gas. I'm not going to let my life be taken away from me. Is it your responsibility to use poetry as activism? Or do you write the poems for you, and if they happen to perform the functions in social justice, that's just what they do? I know I'm not going to change the world. I know that, and I think I'm a pretty good poet, but I know that I will never write the poem that changes the world. So I don't have to worry about that. I can write a poem and enjoy writing it and enjoy reading it and sharing it with people because I know I'm not going to change the world. But why are you so sure you're not going to change the world? Because the world is too stupid. It was a bad idea, and I'm really glad that God doesn't call and ask me, Nikki, what do you think? You think I should let Earth continue? I'd, I'd have to be honest. It's God. You know, you can't lie to God. I'd say, no, it, it didn't work. So that said, what's your advice for the next generation of poets? particularly women poets. There's no such thing as a, a bad poem. You can make a mistake, mathematically speaking, and everybody will, will suffer. You know, if you make a mistake, the building will fall down or the rocket will explode or, you know, you have to drop, as they did recently, the fuel out of the plane and bring it back. But if you write a bad poem, people read it and say, oh, it's a bad poem. And then 100 years from now, everybody says, oh, it's brilliant. We're very grateful to our guests, author and professor at the University of Maryland, Dr. Vincent Coretta, chair of the English department and interim dean at the Graduate School at Howard University, Dr. Dana Williams, and renowned poet and university distinguished professor at Virginia Tech, Nikki Giovanni. Phyllis Wheatley is voiced by Ebony Booth. The male voices in this episode were all done by Jacob Von Eichel. Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stump. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stump, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbeef. This episode was edited by Aaron Kaufman and soundscaped by Anna Stump and Aaron Kaufman. Our associate producer, Emily Marinoff, was also instrumental in putting this episode together. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The Fierce theme is by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stump. Additional music for this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and by Aaron Kaufman. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesh Hatikador for making this series possible. 
And now a special message for someone who needs to be mentioned one more time. Nikki Etor, thank you for everything. Sources for this episode? Poems on various subjects, religious and moral, by Phyllis Wheatley, published by Archibald Bell in London in 1773. Various publications mentioned throughout the episode, which published Phyllis Wheatley's poems and letters during her life. Phyllis Wheatley, Biography of a Genius in Bondage, by Vincent Coretta. The Trials of Phyllis Wheatley, America's First Black Poet and Her Encounters with the Founding Fathers, by Henry Louis Gates. The Poetry Foundation at poetryfoundation.org. And the Phyllis Wheatley Historical Society at phyllis-wheatley.org. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.